Today's reading is from Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. And if you're using a church Bible, you will find that on page 938. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an op opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. Uh, let me encourage you to keep your Bibles open at Titus chapter 2, um, a decent uh, chunk of verses. Oh, that's my fault, sorry guys. It's going to be helpful as you track along to have that in front of you. Let me just pray for us um, as we uh, come before God's Word. Father, we just thank you that you speak to us that you've revealed yourself to us, and most significantly in Jesus. We pray that you would help us to encounter him in the pages of Scripture, and that you would humble our hearts. Please change us. Please make us more like him. Help us and give us the strength we need to live these things out with joy and with wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So let me ask you a question as we start this morning. Are you healthy? Are you healthy? <laughs> Ruth shaking her head and saying no. No. I have to say that every Sunday morning moving those tables reminds me of how unhealthy I am. Do you have healthy behaviors? And we think of that in a physical sense. We think of diet and exercise maybe and sleep and the behaviors we have around those things. But what about spiritually? Are you spiritually healthy? Is your behavior, spiritually speaking, healthy? Titus 1, 10 to 16, which we were in a few weeks ago, we saw how unhealthy, spiritually speaking, the, the behavior of those who didn't follow the truth was. If you look down at verse 16, they were unfit. They were unfit for any good work. Now we have in chapters one, cha chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, we have a vision now for what uh, fitness looks like, what healthiness looks like, what godliness looks like looks like we have a vision for how to get healthy, how to be fit, and how to become more godly in our lives. So in many ways, this is a contrast to what we saw negatively a few weeks ago. So if you're a Christian here this morning, your spiritual health, focusing on that, is not an option. We need to get healthy. We need to become godly in our behavior. Titus 2, thankfully, shows us this morning how to do that, what that looks like. 
As a church, the the church and her leaders play a, a central and crucial role in helping Christians to become healthy, to become godly in their behavior. These verses show us how we're to do that. They show us how godly behavior also serves to make the gospel attractive to the world around us. And this isn't just about being a healthy Christian. These verses are more than that. They are about what it means to be a healthy human being. Here is what healthy living looks like. Healthy living is godly living. It's made possible only by grace and its good. We see that word repeated, not just in Titus, but in these verses particularly. The way that we're called to live here, the kind of behavior we're supposed to embody is good. That's why we should pursue it and um, behave that way. So the big response this passage calls from us this morning is this, pursue godly behavior, behavior in the church to beautify the gospel. Pursue godly behavior in the church to beautify the gospel. We're going to unpack those things as we go through. The first thing we see, though, is that as part of getting healthy, four ways to get healthy or to get godly in our behavior, the first thing we need to do is to get taught healthy doctrine. We explored last time how when you see the word sound in Titus, really the, uh, the meaning behind that is healthy. We need to get taught healthy doctrine. If you look down at verse 1 in chapter 2, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Titus is to do the opposite of the people that we saw in verses 10 to 16. He is to teach what accords with or what is fitting with sound doctrine. He is to teach the Cretans, you and me, what godliness looks like. He's going to show us what godliness looks like. And the connection he's making here is that true godliness can only come from true doctrine. Godliness flows from truth. We've been seeing that connection throughout the whole of Titus between sound doctrine, the connection between sound and healthy doctrine and sound and healthy living. If you look back at verse 1, chapter 1, verse 1, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. We see this connection made, telling us that without sound doctrine, without healthy doctrine, we cannot be healthy. We cannot be healthy without healthy, sound doctrine. The reason for that is because the truth is what transforms our hearts and therefore our lives. We need truth. We need healthy doctrine to transform our hearts and our lives. We need the good news of Jesus, the grace of Christ to change us. Romans 1 really gets to the heart of why we remain unchanged. It tells us in Romans 1 that we exchange the truth about God for a lie. At the heart behind all of our negative emotions and ungodly behavior is untruth and lies. Things that our hearts don't believe, our hearts refuse to believe. Romans 1 makes that connection. In Romans 12, we, of course, know the verse, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind. We need healthy doctrine. We need sound doctrine. We need need truth to transform how we think and how we desire in order to change how we behave. Our behavior flows from what our hearts believe, what they think, what they desire. So unhealthy doctrine will lead to unhealthy thinking, unhealthy desiring, which will lead to unhealthy behavior. But if we get healthy doctrine, if we get truth instead of lies, it will lead to healthy thinking, healthy desires which leads to healthy behavior. If you think about it in bodily terms, if we eat unhealthy food, our bodies will be unhealthy and our behavior will be unhealthy. We'll become slow and sluggish or 
even worse. But if we feed our bodies with healthy food, our bodies will become healthy, our behaviors will become healthy, we'll have more energy and all of those things. So it is with doctrine. What do we mean by doctrine? Well, the word doctrine really is teaching or instruction. Instruction in what? The truth. The truth that we find in God's trustworthy word. So sound doctrine is everything that the Bible reveals. All of it. At the heart of which is the person and work of Jesus. His perfect life, his sacrificial death, his bodily resurrection, his victorious resurrection and ascension and all the present and future promises that are bound up in him. That's sound doctrine. We need all of it. So you and I, if you want to get healthy, if you want to change, we must get taught sound doctrine. It's not optional. And we need to be taught the kind of behavior that should flow from that doctrine. We need to be shown how the truth that plays itself out in our everyday lives. We need to consume that doctrine. We need to consume that teaching personally by immersing ourselves in God's Word, by grasping the core doctrines of the Christian faith. Let me ask you, how how confident and how immersed are you in the key beliefs of the Christian faith? If you want to grow in that or deepen in that, then come and speak to me. There's lots of resources you can do. Of course, open your Bible, or if you have an ESV study Bible at the back, there's really helpful summaries of Christian doctrine. Get yourself some good books. These doctrines need to shape your heart and your life in order to help you know how to live. Or if you want to help your children grasp sound doctrine, teach them the Bible. Use good resources to help them grasp the key truths of the faith that will not only change them, but help them to remain steadfast in the world that they encounter. And we were primarily meant to be taught sound doctrine in the context of the church, in a corporate context. So yes, personally, consume things personally, learn things personally, but we need to be taught sound doctrine in the context of the church, in a corporate context, because we need to be taught by one another, which we'll see more so in a moment. We need to be taught by pastor teachers, elders, whom Jesus gifts to the church in order to help us learn those things. You're not supposed to have to figure it out on your own. Corporate is primary because we need help. That's why he gives us those people, because we need protection. As we thought about a few weeks ago, that there's lots of unsound doctrine out there. We need the help of those in the church to guard us from unsound doctrine. We need to consume doctrine and be taught it within the context of the church because we need encouragement and exhortation to live it out, to not stray from it, to keep walking in it. And we need to consume it and be taught it in the context of the church because the church gives us a context to live that doctrine out. Doctrine lived out manifests in our relationships with one another and with the world. If your study of doctrine isn't leading to greater godliness and greater participation in the life of the church, then you aren't healthy. And perhaps the doctrine you're learning is not healthy. Let me just say that this is a church where we want you to deepen in your knowledge and your affection for sound doctrine, for the core truths of the Christian faith, for for the gospel. Doctrine that will ultimately lead you to a deeper knowledge of God, a deeper love for Him, and a deeper love for one another. So that's the first step in getting healthy. Get taught healthy doctrine. The second step, which we've already begun to think about, is get trained 
in a healthy church family. Get trained in a healthy church family. What we have then in verses 2 to 6, which Deborah read out to us, really is a picture of family. We have older men, uh, older women, younger men, younger women. Paul anticipates that this will be the makeup of the church in Crete, that it will be a kind of family makeup, different ages, different stages. And we know from elsewhere in the New Testament that the church is described as a household, it's described as a family. So really the picture here in verses 2 to 6 is a, is a family. So we, what we see then in these verses is how each family member is called to behave in a way that's distinctive to their age and to their sex. We have so much in common, but we are also distinct in terms of our sex and our age. So we're called to live out our godliness in a specific way. In the same way, you might tailor a, an exercise routine to different people. So we see that godliness requires a lot of similar things, but some different things of each other. And importantly, we see how each member of the family isn't just to be concerned about their own health and fitness. They're to be deeply concerned about the health and fitness and godliness of those around them, of those who are younger, of those who are older. We see here in these verses a responsibility to teach and train and model to one another. So as we work through these distinctive groups, um, just be thinking this way. Here is how you, and all of us are included in this, here is how you are specifically called to behave. Here is the kind of church family we should long to be. Here is how we're called to contribute to that. These are significant verses for the life of the church, maybe particularly two years in. This is what we really want to give ourselves to, these verses. For those who are older, as we work our way through these verses, here is how you are to live. Ken, I was joking with someone before the service about how I was going to define what old was. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to tell you what one of the commentaries said. Okay, He said, if you're above 40 to 50. Sorry, sorry. 50 seems to be the common consensus of what have been in that context. What would have been considered older? So if you're in that category, I'm trying to avoid eye contact at the minute. If you're in that category, here is how you're to live. Here's the behaviors that you are to grow in. Here is how you are to disciple and train those who are younger than you in the church. Did you know that you were called to do that? Yes, you're responsible for yourself and your biological family, but we're responsible for one another. If you're younger, if you're younger, here are the kind of older people that you are to seek out. Here are the kind of older people you're to seek to be taught by and trained by. Here are the kinds of older men and women you are to look up to. And everyone is older than someone. So as we all look around the room, we need to consider who it is that we might be an example to and invest in. And also just to say as we dive in here, whilst we must account for the specific behaviors of age and sex, we mustn't overread into these either. It's not, just, it's not as if only older men are to be sober-minded and only young women are to be kind, okay? So don't overread into this, but here we see some specifics to help us navigate that dependent on our age and sex. So, first of all, older men. What are older men to be? They're to be sober-minded. Older men are to be sober-minded and sober-living. They're to make sound judgments, and they're those who do not allow their passions to dictate their behavior. They're sober-minded. They're dignified. They live honorably. A godly dignity defines their life. 
They're worthy of respect. That's the kind of man you should desire to be or to grow up to be. They have to be self-controlled, and self-controlled is something we'll see throughout all these categories. They're not to be erratic, rash, or impulsive. In their decision-making or their behavior, they're to be sound and prudent and discreet. They're to be sound in the faith. Older men, men, are to be committed to Christ and confident in Him. They're to be confident and committed to His church and to the spread of the gospel. That's what a godly man is, a man who's committed to Christ, who's confident in his faith, and who's committed to the church and the spread of the gospel. Is that true of you? Despite having been through tough things and having wrestled with difficult circumstances, his faith is still standing. His faith inspires the confidence of other believers around him. <coughs> He's also sound in love. His faith evidences itself in a love for God and a love for others. It isn't cold and private. It's loving and focused on others. He's sound in steadfastness. That really speaks to patience, perseverance, endurance. He isn't easily shaken or destabilized in his faith. He has a long view of the gospel and of godliness. He's patient. He's patient with himself. He's patient with the world around him, and he's patient with those in his church. Older men, here is what you are to be. Here is what you are to strive for. Here's what you still need to grow in. Nobody's the finished article. Here is how you can best honor God. Here's the kind of behavior that God demands of you and that this church needs of you, that your family needs of you, that your friends need of you. Young men, here is the kind of man you should aspire to be. Here's the kind of man you should strive to grow up and be by God's grace and the Spirit's help. That's older men, older women. Older women are to be reverent in behavior, which is kind of a catch-all for their characteristics. Reverent really means holy. We could think about it in those terms. Reverent is holy. Women are, older women are to be holy in behavior, and that's explained really in two specific ways. They're not to be slanderers, and they're not to be slaves to much wine. So they're not to be slanderers. They're to be holy in their speech. They're to not be gossips. Their conversation should build up, not tear down. They're also not to be slaves to much wine. That means they're to be holy in their appetites. Perhaps that's emphasized here because of a problem in Crete. But it's a reminder for us that though drunkenness is often associated with men, women are not immune from or unsusceptible to these things and also need to be equally watchful. Older women are not to be slanderers, they're not to be slaves to much wine, and they're also to teach what is good. Here we see a specific task that older women are given. So we see here in Titus 2, and we also see it in places like uh, Acts, where Aquila and Priscilla uh, counsel Apollos that women are to teach that we need women who can wisely and competently teach God's Word, particularly to other women. And this is critical to the health of the church. We need women who can teach wisely and competently within the life of the church to other women, like we see uh, in Titus 2. 
as something that we want to encourage and equip women in within the life of this church because of how invaluable and vital that ministry is. Let me just emphasize that. We need women to embrace and be equipped and encouraged in the call to teach other women particularly. We want to encourage you in that and to, to equip you in that. Why is it that they are to teach? They are to teach what is good. That is what's godly and honorable and Christ-like. And the teaching there involves training. Training, exhorting, encouraging, coming alongside, putting your arm around younger women particularly, and helping them figure out how to be godly, how to be a godly woman, how to be a godly young woman. So older women particularly, but all women, need to pursue this kind of godliness, reverent behavior, not slanders, not slaves to much wine, give themselves to teaching what is good. Older women need to give themselves to this, to, to give themselves to teach other women in the church how to be godly. That's really, the, these verses are the, the heart or the driver behind why we have things like Harvest Ladies and Men's. We pray that that would serve as a catalyst towards this kind of ministry in everyday life. That provides a context where we might see the importance of those things, that kind of sex-specific teaching, and encourage and catalyze that on a weekly basis. Specifically, though, older women are to train younger women with respect to the household. Why do they focus? Why, why does Paul tell Titus to get older women to focus on the home and on their husbands? I think two big reasons, if we look at the text in front of us. The first big reason is if you look at the end of verse 5, they are to love their husbands and be submissive to them. Why? So that the word of God may not be reviled. We know that marriage really is a, is a defining display of the gospel in our world. So we need healthy marriages in order to ensure that the, the picture of the gospel is clear and compelling. I think the other big reason why there's a focus on the home and on husbands is because the issue at hand is that false teachers were upsetting who? Do you remember back in verse 11 of chapter 1? They were upsetting whole families, whole households. If we scan around the rest of the New Testament, we see that one of Satan's main ways of using false teaching, particularly with respect to women, was to tempt them to abandon their God-given calling, God calling, role, and responsibilities within marriage and the home. That was particularly where he was seeking to attack them. We see this from other places, like 1 Timothy 5, which speaks about young widows. It says, young widows learn to be idlers going about from house to house, not, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. You see a kind of similar emphasis. Then 2 Timothy 3 verse 6, again speaking about false teachers, says, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Bottom line here is, as a woman, as a younger woman, don't get distracted from, don't neglect your distinctive God-given responsibilities and roles within the home, within the church, within this world. Don't, don't get distracted from those things. Don't neglect those things. Don't do what Eve did. It's the oldest trick in the book. Satan got Eve 
to go outside her God-given role and boundaries. She came out from under the authority and submission of her husband. Yes, he failed too, but it was in that act that sin entered the world. Don't do what she did. Don't do what many women were doing in light of temptation and false teaching. Give yourself to be a godly woman. These verses are not saying that marriage and children are essential to being a godly woman, (coughs) but that for those who are married and have children, it forms a significant part of your calling and are not things to be neglected. So if you're married here this morning, what are you to do? You're to love your husband. It's not just husbands that are called to love their wives. Wives are called here to love their husbands. Be affectionate towards your husband. Be faithful to him. Be selfless towards him. Another thing that married women are called to here is to submit to their husband. I've spoken more to this in previous sermons back in Ephesians uh, 5. Submission to your husband is willingly placing yourself under the loving leadership of him in obedience to Christ. To love your husband, you're to submit to him. If you're married with children, the exhortation here is to love your children, to be affectionate and loyal to them, to nurture them. Might seem strange to some of us, doesn't it, that mothers would be told to love their children. Since we have in this room, in our lives, so many examples of the natural love that a mother has towards our children. Perhaps, though, that's because we see that love within the church. But if we go outside into our world, this exhortation seems needed to love children in a world of abortion, in a world where children are often viewed as a hindrance to progress and entertainment in life. The call to love children is still deeply needed. Don't neglect it. And also, if you're married with children, give yourself to work at home. This exhortation doesn't prohibit work outside the home, but it does point to the expectation and call placed upon mothers and wives to carry the primary responsibility for the day-to-day care of their homes and children. And for homes where there are single parents who carry all of that responsibility in the home, the church gets to and needs to come alongside them and help them. So it's not prohibiting work outside the home. What it's saying is that if you are married with children, that's your primary calling. Yes, the husband is to help. Yes, the husband is to be involved. But Scripture teaches us that the mother, the wife, is to carry that primary responsibility on a day-to-day basis. Let me just say this as well, that working at home is a role which is grossly undervalued and belittled significantly in our society in these days, but one which is godly, is essential, and is a deeply fulfilling calling. Reminds me of uh, as we interact with um, some of our uh, partner churches in North America, the Americans, I think, speak well of of this, that when they used to speak to Zoe in in that context, they always asked her, do you work outside the home? Whereas in our context, maybe someone would say, do you work? And we always find that kind of helpful, that do you work outside the home? The implication is there that you're already working in the home, right? It's a godly calling. It's an essential calling. It's a deeply fulfilling calling. Don't neglect it. To all women then, whether you're married with children or not, Being a godly woman, a godly young woman, involves pursuing these characteristics. The characteristics we see in Titus that are common to all women. 
Pursue these things. Be faithful to your God-ordained responsibilities and role within the home if you're married, but also, as we mentioned, within the household of God. The church is described as a household. So be faithful to your roles and your responsibilities there too. What are some of these godly characteristics? Well, he mentions them. Women, uh, younger women are to be self-controlled, as we noted with men. Again, that kind of have your passions and your desires under control in a godly way. They're to be pure. Young women are to be pure. They're to pursue chastity both inside or outside of marriage. Purity of heart, purity of thought. And they're to be kind. So if you're a younger woman, if you're below 50, don't neglect these responsibilities. Pursue these characteristics. And the fact that training in these things is required or is encouraged of older women for you means that you can and you should humbly seek and avail yourself of that help. Don't be prideful. Seek and avail yourself of help from older women, older godly women, not just any older woman, older godly women. Seek the help and the example of older godly women who have managed their households well and who display godly character. What about younger men? Verse 6, if you look down. Younger men are to be self-controlled. I kind of wondered, why, why is younger men only given one thing to do? Maybe it's the multitasking thing, right? Maybe it's because of the significance of that need amongst younger men, of the significance to really highlight that one thing. We see as well uh, in the next few verses in 7 and 8 as well, kind of the traits of younger men too. Younger men are to be self-controlled. They're to be self-controlled. And really, I think this self-control theme keeps coming up in contrast to the kind of people that were uh, infiltrating this church back in verses 10 to 16. You remember they were lazy gluttons. So younger men are to be self-controlled. Self-controlled in all aspects of life, their desires, their speech, their time, their purity. Not impulsive, but prudent and measured. The fact that this is emphasized, I do think, points to the fact that young men particularly struggle with lack of self-control. You need other godly men around you in order to grab hold of that and get it under control. So, here's how we're all called to be godly. No one's left out of these verses. Here's what it means to be a godly man and woman, a godly young man, a godly young woman. Consider as you reflect on these things where you most need to grow. Consider how self-control and submission... So self-control comes up, and we also see submission come up twice, and we'll see it again in a moment with slaves. Consider how those two things are not just countercultural in Crete, hence why they're overemphasized, but they're also deeply countercultural in our world today as well. Self-control and submission, whatever context that might work itself out in. Consider how attractive that makes the gospel. Consider and contribute to the church as a place where you should be trained, where you need to be trained in these things. Get trained and train others. Rebecca McLaughlin in her book, Confronting Christianity, speaks to the benefits of the church community. And here's what she says about those who regularly gather with the church. Research suggests, and this is from secular research, research suggests that those who regularly attend services are more optimistic, have lower rates of depression, are less likely to commit suicide, have a greater purpose in life, are less likely to divorce, and are more self-controlled, more self-controlled. 
You need a church family to grow in these things. It's impossible without it. These verses also teach us that the church is to function like family. Older people are called to be spiritual parents. Younger people are gifted with spiritual parents. And we also see that these verses call us to focus and pursue the distinctives of your age and the distinctives of your sex unashamedly, wholeheartedly. But Paul and Titus don't just tell us how to be godly. It's not just do as I say, it's do as I do. We need a model for godliness. We need an example before us to help us see what does that look like? How does that play itself out? You've told me what I should do and what I should be. Give me an example. That's the third thing we see. Four ways to get healthy, get taught healthy doctrine, get trained in a healthy church family, and get a model in healthy church leaders. If you look down at verse 7, Paul speaking to Titus here, he says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. So we need examples to follow, and God gives us examples in church leaders particularly. God gives us with those examples, albeit as imperfect as they will be, that he gives us those examples of godly, healthy, godly behavior. It's extremely important and extremely powerful that teaching is backed up with an example that serves to spur us on towards godliness. On the flip side, teaching that isn't backed up with that godly example lacks any weight or gravity, no matter how good the teaching is. <coughs> so I was uh, in these verses this week, I was thinking about the older men who have influenced me in my life. And one of the things I reflected on was, yes, they taught me, but actually their example and how I saw them live out their life in the church and live out their life in the home, how they spoke to those around them, how they treated their wife, those were the things that are lasting in my mind. Their example is what showed me what it means to be a godly young man and older man. They gave me something to follow. Philippians 3, Paul says something similar. He says, brothers, join in imitating me. He said, I'm an example to follow. Follow me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So if you are a church leader here, or you lead in some capacity, be a model that people can follow. Let your life be a model that people can follow. Older men and women in the church, be a model for younger men and women. Be a model they can look to and live up to and follow. And know this, that your life is by default a model whether you know it or not. Make sure it's a good one. Make sure it's a good one. You are providing a model of what it looks like to be an older godly man or woman, younger man or woman. Make sure it's a good model. And it's not just older to younger, okay? Timothy, verse, Timothy 4, verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct, love, faith, and purity. It goes both ways. There's an opportunity for younger people to model that to older people as well. These verses also teach us that church, churches should look to godly leaders and godly saints as examples to follow and emulate. That's why being in a church is so important. If you're not in the church, you don't have the examples you need. As a church, it means we should also make sure we appoint and look for leaders who don't just teach well, but who exemplify godliness. And these things apply not just to the church and her leaders, but we could think of the model we set in the workplace, in the home, amongst our friends and family members, amongst our neighbors, particularly if we lead in some way in those things. So godly example is needed, but it must still also be accompanied by godly teaching. 
If you look down at verse 78, Paul says to Titus, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech. His teaching is to have integrity. It should endure. It should be incorruptible, unlike that of the false teachers. It should have a dignity about it. His teaching should be serious. He should take his teaching seriously because the gospel is serious and God is serious. There should be a reverence to his teaching, a weightiness, a gravity to it. His, speech, his, his teaching should be sound and healthy. It should be sound speech. One commentator says of sound speech, he says this, words can cripple and harm, but Titus's speech is to be restorative and healing. Its soundness lies in its potential to strengthen and make whole. It should be speech that builds up. Again, in mind here is the comparison to those in verses 10 to 16, whose teaching did the opposite. It didn't build up. It upset whole families. It tore down. His teaching is to be this way so that it cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. So for those who preach and teach publicly, make sure you teach like this with integrity, dignity, and sound speech. Make sure you sit under preaching and teaching like that. As those who are called to teach in some respect, as all of us are called to teach in some respect, let us all teach in this regard. And here's how you can identify false teaching as well, by teaching that is opposite to this, that doesn't have integrity, that is undignified, and that isn't sound. So we're to get healthy, we're to behave in a godly way. We, we thought about that in respect to age, male, female, church life, church leaders. And then the example we have in verse 10, 9 to 10 reminds us that we're to behave in a godly way in every sphere and station of life. Something we'll only do when we recognize who it is we're striving to be godly for. That's the fourth thing we see. Get taught health doc, healthy doctrine, get trained in a healthy church, get a model in healthy church leaders, finally get living for your heavenly master. Verses 9 to 10, bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything there, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pelfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Paul uses an example here of the bond-servant-master relationship. Again, I've spoken to this before. If you want to think more about the nature of that relationship, come and speak to me. Perhaps the closest parallel we have to this is the workplace here we see that our behavior, whether it's in the workplace or we could expand that maybe to school or whatever it might be, our behavior should be submissive. It should be submissive in everything. Notice that? Not just in the things we want to be submissive in. Not just when we agree with what our boss says or our teacher says. We should seek to please our boss or our teacher or whoever it might be. We should not talk back to them. We should not steal from them, either financially or resources or time. And we should also show all good faith. That means we should be deemed trustworthy. Are you a trustworthy employee? Are you a trustworthy worker? Are you a trustworthy student? Can you be trusted? Yes, bosses aren't always perfect. Yes, there's such a thing as a bad boss, an unfair teacher. These verses still call us to conduct ourselves in a godly manner. And I was kind of thinking, why does he choose this example in, in amongst this list? Why does he choose the example of a bond servant and a master? Perhaps 
to really highlight how we're called to godly behavior even in the more difficult and potentially demeaning aspects of life. The example here serves to show us that we are to be godly in everything. And when Paul says everything, he means everything, even in that situation. We will only do that, we will only strive for godliness in everything, even maybe the harder aspects of life, the harder circumstances of life, when we live for our heavenly master. That perspective will motivate us to a godly behavior in every sphere and station of life. And this example, kind of significant example, also highlights that when we are godly in everything, it's an extremely important and powerful witness to the gospel. That in the least expected place, the bond-servant-master relationship where we would find it, the, the example where we'd find it hardest to be godly uh, uh, when we, it would be least expected that we would be godly is the, the example that uh, shines brightest in terms of displaying the gospel. That's what verse 10 shows us. We are to be godly in everything so that we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. <coughs> Here's our motivation for godly behavior, that it would adorn the doctrine of our Savior. We've seen this three times now in the verses. Have you noticed? Verse 5, end of verse 5, end of verse 8, now in verse 10. How we live, how we behave serves to beautify the gospel or conversely to bring it into disrepute. Let's seek to do the former. Let's seek to make the gospel beautiful by our behavior. In the home, with our spouse, with our children, in the workplace, in the church, whatever it might be. Here is motivation for being godly in everything so that people might see Jesus. Take your eyes off of yourself and your circumstances. Serve your heavenly master. Consider the beauty that you can display of the gospel and allow that to motivate how you would then work your godliness out in those relationships and contexts. Notice that it's a display of the doctrine of God our Savior. We need saving. You, as you read these verses, I'm sure you're thinking, man, I fall short of this. Yes, we do. The good news is that in Christ, God has sent us a Savior to save us from our shortcomings. We need grace in amongst all of this. And let me tell you, there is grace, okay? We're going to explore that more next week. Grace forgives us when we fall short and enables us and changes us to actually live these things out. In Jesus, God lovingly sends us a Savior in his perfect sinless life, Jesus succeeded in these things where we fall short. In his sacrificial death, Jesus atones for our sinful shortcomings in these areas. Through repentance and faith in him, we can be forgiven by our sin, for our sin and by grace alone changed into the kind of people that we're called to be here. That's what God does for us. That's how God saves us. So, pursue godly behavior in the church to beautify the gospel. Let's do that together. We need to do that together. Let's do it in order to display the gospel both to one another and to the world around us. And we're just going to remember that saving grace, that saving mercy that God has shown us in Christ as we gather around the table. As we do that, I'm just going to read 
verses from Titus chapter 3. Feel free to track along with me. Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7, to, to see this saving work that God has done in our lives. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Isn't that what we once were? Isn't that what sometimes still marks our lives? Passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's what we remember as we come around this table. That's what we remember as we strive to obey these things. That's the grace that we need to both live these things out and to increasingly become more like what God calls us to be.